want to thank you for being here. I want to wish you a happy Easter. And I don't know what Easter means to you. For a lot of people, it's decorating eggs. For some people, it's getting dressed up in their Easter finery. For some people, it's a marvelous meal. Of course, Easter gets its basis on the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. And so as we look during this COVID-19 season of the world, we've got some legitimate questions in our head as we consider Easter Sunday. If you had told me we'd be having an Easter service with really no church presence, uh, in, in the same room at least, uh, I would have said, how do you do that? And yet, we've had a few weeks go at this so that we kind of have figured out how to do it. If you just watched and, and are coming from our home church, which is Champions Forest Baptist Church, uh, they've just finished their service. Pastor Stephen Trammell brought an amazing message on, on, on uh, the, the exhibits of the, the resurrection of God and that God can do the impossible and all of these other things. That, that was a wonderful message. Our worship team led in worship. And somehow we do this through the internet. This is the, the Bible study time period that I get to lead. And so here we are. Now, I looked at the headlines before I did this PowerPoint. And Politico is a website that took a, 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 an opportunity to speak with 20 experts on how coronavirus will change the world permanently. And here's what they said. These experts said the following ideas. First of all, the rules that we've historically lived by won't be the same rules anymore. Uh, handshakes may never become the normal for a way to greet someone. The personal has become dangerous. Another one of the so-called experts said that there'll be less individualism, that there'll be a decline in polarization. That might be good. You know, right now we've got an America that's very polarized. You're either a, a, a hero or a villain. And very few people uh, these days, it seems, find that nuanced middle that says, hey, not everybody's all bad and not everybody's all good and, and everybody's got good and bad and, and they struggle to find the best. Um, so the rise of telemedicine. I myself had a doctor's appointment uh, two weeks ago by telemedicine. The doctor was doing a follow-up for a procedure I'd had done, and he uh, said we'd do it by video conference or just by telephone. And this telemedicine is a new rise. Another prediction of the experts is that big government's going to make a big comeback. And I think we may be seeing that in a number of ways as the government's tried to step in and provide some measure of social security and a safety net for people, and also instructions. A new kind of patriotism that's going to be different than what we've seen before. Religious worship will look different, some have predicted. So with all of these predictions, where do we land? Well, that's some of what I want to talk to you about this morning on Easter Sunday morning. I'm excited because this is different already for me. Generally, on Easter Sunday, for the last decade plus at our church, we haven't had our life group classes. So Easter Sunday is not a Sunday where I get to teach. It's a Sunday where I get to, to enjoy the, the sermon. It's a Sunday when I get to celebrate the resurrection and worship. 
but we don't have our life groups, our, our Bible study times. Yet this year, because we're doing this via the internet, we have an opportunity to do so. So we welcome you. Now, I, I can tell you that, that these changes by the experts are one set of changes. There's another set of changes that my mom sent me by email. My mom got this email and uh, sent it to me, and I found it very humorous. The email said, when I was young, we had Steve Jobs, Johnny Cash, and Bob Hope. Today, no jobs, no cash, and no hope. Please don't let anything happen to Kevin Bacon. I thought that was pretty good. I liked that, so we throw it in there. But something is is out there, and life is changing. And so as we look at these changes that are significant, you look at the maps to see the effect of no pollution. Because nobody's driving. Industry's not churning out. Uh, You've got world changes in terms of the way the earth is is, um, reforming itself, if you will, during this time. What we'd like to do in here, though, is do some Bible study while living with coronavirus. So we're going to bring in the Bible. We're going to flee the coronavirus into scripture to see what it has to say. And I'm going to suggest to you that as important and life-changing as the coronavirus will be, as much as the coronavirus may be a hinge upon which this world pivots and the world may never be the same again, I'll tell you this, it's not the hub of history. The hub of history is the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. I don't care if you're a Christian believer or not. It is still the hub around which the past and the future make sense. If you are a believer, it gives meaning and definition to the past and the future. But even if you're not, I mean, if you write on a check, 2020, you're writing a date with a reference to the birth of of Jesus. You may want to say it's common era, that's fine, but the common era began with the birth of Jesus. We've got a world where the birth of Jesus has influenced not only uh, uh, us as individual believers, but it's influenced culture, it's influenced society. It was the backbone through the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance. It provided definition and academia in Western civilization. It is a major hub of history, the major hub. And so I want to talk about that today. I've got three points to make with you, three discussion points, and it seemed to me appropriate to use an Easter egg. Uh, it's got a yolk. It's got the white and it's got a shell. So that's what we're going to do. The first point is the yoke, the center of the matter, the core. And I want to ask the question, was the death of Christ necessary? And then asking that question, I want to, we'll go to the next part of the egg. Why the empty tomb? And then as we get to the third part of the egg, what does this mean for me? So with that as our our template, our roadmap of where we're going, let's start with, was the death of Christ necessary? I have a one-word answer for you. It's an easy one. Yes, the death of Christ was necessary. 
When I was growing up, I used to wonder, why didn't God just do it another way? He's God. Why didn't God just say, okay, you've got some sins. Uh, I need to get rid of them. Give me a, a, an eternal eraser. You know, give me some white out. And I'll just let them slide. I'll just let them go. And I was young and I hadn't spent a lot of time yet really in depth in the scriptures. And it wasn't until I got to college and was studying Greek. We were translating the New Testament that I began to understand something very different about this. And it's something that fits with me as a student of the Bible, but it also fits with me as a lawyer. I got a bunch of lawyer buddies who watch this. Uh, have texted me saying they're watching. Shout outs to Richard, shout outs to Pap, shout outs to so many of you folks who, who show me encouragement and support. But I really think as lawyers, we are especially tuned in to the necessity of the cross of Jesus. Because lawyers live a life based on justice, and we have a just God. And so that's what I want to do. I want to start with the scriptures. And the scriptures we're going to start with are two. I want to look at Matthew 16, 21. And I want to look at Luke 24, 25. So Brent, if we can go to the Elmo for just a moment, we'll start with Matthew 16, 21. And I've got uh, a fresh set of Galco highlighters that's been sent to me. Thank you, Linda. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now look carefully at that. There is buried in here this word must. Now, must to us is not necessarily a word that we give emphasis to. Sometimes it's just an add-on. But this is a real Greek word. It is delta, epsilon, iota, day in the Greek. And it means must, required, essential, necessary. Jesus is telling everyone that he had to die. And be resurrected. It had to happen. It wasn't just, oh, uh, why didn't God choose another way? That was the way, the only way. Look at the Luke 24 25 passage. Luke 24 25. Now, this is after the resurrection. Two, two disciples of Jesus, Cleopas and some unnamed uh, disciple, are walking to Emmaus. And they don't realize that Jesus is the one who's uh, joined them on part of that journey and started talking to them. And so in the process, they're relating to Jesus what had happened. And Jesus says in verse 25, he says, Jesus says to him, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things? And enter into his glory. Suffer these things. Die. Enter into his glory. Unto a resurrection. 
These are necessary, not optional. This is necessary. Why? What makes this necessary? It's simple. Justice. Justice is what drives the requirement of Jesus dying. Justice is a concept that weighs deeds impartially, executing the appropriate penalty. Look carefully at this. I'm going all lawyer on you, but look at it. Justice weighs deeds impartially. That means no preference. It's not justice if it's, well, I'm going to weigh the deeds for everyone except my wife. I love sweet Becky. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to weigh your deeds. You know, Daniel's hanging around with Rebecca, and we've always kind of liked him. He's hung around for decades plus, which is amazing because he's like only 22, but, uh, 23 now. But, but what if I just say, well, I'm going to execute justice for everybody except Daniel. Well, then it's not justice. I am unjust if I start cutting slack for my sister Catherine. I am un... Davis is in law school. If, if, if justice means anything, it means justice is impartial. You know the, the picture of Lady Justice? See the blindfold? That's because she's not supposed to make decisions based on who you are. Justice should be blindfolded because it's got to be impartial. But she also carries a sword because justice executes an appropriate penalty. Now, why do I say all of this? Because God is a just God. It's a characteristic of him. It is an attribute of him. And he's an unchanging God. He can't suddenly become unjust. He can't act contrary to his nature. It is absolutely bedrock, fundamental, who God is. He's just. And a just God must impartially execute the penalty that's appropriate for the crime. Those penalties come. They just do. You know, if I ask you this question, what happens if you hold your hand in fire? It's not hard. If you stick your hand in the fire, you will be burned. That is a consequence that's inherent in the character of fire and flesh. If you stick your hand in a roaring flame and hold it there, the flame will win. You will burn your hand. In the same way, if you sin... Before God, if you do something that, and we'll talk about what sin is in a minute, but when you do something contrary to the character of God, you have transgressed. And what God does, just as sure as fire burns flesh, death comes to sin. See, and this applies to everybody. Justice applies to everyone or it isn't justice. 
So that means for everyone, I want you to think of sin this way. Think of sin as a cancer that must be killed. If your body develops a cancer cell, you've got to destroy that cell lest that cell destroy you by uh, uh, propagating and growing and dividing and, and, and everything that crescendos from the mitosis of that cell. If you don't get rid of the cancer, now why do I say think of sin this way? Sin is like cancer. Sin is taking something that's good and right and holy and just, but it's exercising it in a way that's not. Um, It is good for me to eat. That nourishes the machine. And yet, if I eat to excess, that's gluttony. Or if I eat things that, that aren't healthy in a disproportionate way, That's not taking care of the body that God gave me. It's not good stewardship. God puts um, uh, things at our disposal. You you make money. You get money from what you do. There's nothing sinful about having money. But the love of money, Paul says, is the root of all evil. There's nothing sinful about me... um, uh, uh, doing anything in a sense if I do it in the right way. It's doing something that in, in the wrong way. It's doing something out of selfishness. It's doing something out of self-interest. There's nothing wrong with speaking. But if you say things that are gossiping, that's the cancer. There's nothing wrong with speaking, but if you lie, that's the cancer. So think of cancer as doing something in a way that God wouldn't have it done. And that makes cancer or sin the cancer. And what do you do with sin? What do you do with cancer? God, the just God, says it's got to be destroyed. So here I am, a sinful man. I I don't care how good I am compared to anybody else in this planet. You compare me to God, and I'm repugnant. Oh, I can help my wife. Last night she was doing the dishes, and uh, uh, I got up and I tried to help do the dishes. Now, does that make me like some stellar husband? Well, I'd love to tell you, oh yeah. But I promise you, I had at least a little bit of selfishness in that. I cared about how I looked to her, to my daughters. I mean, the best human deed is tainted with at least a little bit of selfishness. And that makes it repugnant to God, that makes it a cancer. Maybe it's a little cancer, but it's a cancer. That's why Jesus says, you know, it's not just a matter of don't kill someone. You don't need to be angry and wish their ill will. Because that's the cancer. 
He says you're not supposed to commit adultery, but you shouldn't even be doing it in your brain. That's the cancer. So here we are, a cancer-ridden people with sin running amok. And I ask you this question. How does a just God apply justice without destroying humanity? I've got the cancer. I just as as the wages of sin are death. You've got to kill the cancer. So I'm, I, I've got the cancer. How does God, how does a just God apply justice to me without destroying humanity? The answer to that is he applies justice at the cross of Christ. This is why the death was necessary. Christ took our sins on. Look at this passage that St. Paul gave to the Galatians in Galatians 3.13. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is you sin, you die. Christ redeemed us from that law of sin and death. You sin, you die by becoming a curse for us. He took our sin He bore the consequence. He let it be his hand in the fire. He let the cancer be put on him. And when the cancer is on him, he dies. If you go to the Holy Land, one of the things people love to do is go to the River Jordan where Jesus was baptized, where John was baptizing people. And, and baptized in, in the New Testament sense of, of that word, baptizo is a verb. It means to immerse, uh, to dunk. My dad would baptize cornbread in buttermilk. He would dunk it in there. He would also baptize his donuts in coffee. He would dunk them in there. So you go there to be baptized, but this is what St. Paul says about baptism. The first part is you're, you're, you go down into the water, and that's a, an image, a picture of us going into the tomb with Jesus, into his death. Don't you know, Paul said to the Romans, that all of us who've been baptized, dunked into Christ, were dunked into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. That's the image. You're going down into the water. How does a just God apply justice without destroying humanity? By letting humanity join into the death of Christ and let the death of Christ take on our sins. As Paul told the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Now Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been baptized into his death. I've been buried with him. Was the death of Christ necessary? Absolutely. Second point. Why the empty tomb? Look at this carefully. Why the empty tomb? Simple answer. The empty tomb is the victory of God. Think about it. The empty tomb is the victory of God. 
Jesus bore the sins of the world. He paid the price. He took the curse. But sin could not win over God. Jesus was not just a man, he was God. Sin cannot win over God. So God provides a way with the empty tomb. Here's the passage of scripture I want us to look at. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. And uh, we'll put it over here. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Now, remember, we're talking about the empty tomb here. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, if that doesn't happen, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, if there's no empty tomb, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, we're found to be misrepresenting God because we testified he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead aren't raised. If the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no empty tomb, why on earth are you watching this? I can give you a lot better things to watch. If there's no empty tomb, I've got no reason to be excited. But because the tomb was empty, I know that not only has my sin been paid for, but I have a promised resurrection in Jesus. This is happy Easter. This is blessed Easter. This is a reason for flowers. This is a reason to wake up and to say, thank you, God. Easter with an empty tomb means God won over sin. But it's not just God winning. The empty tomb is our victory as well. If, the, if, if, if Good Friday, the cross of Christ, if the crucifixion is us being baptized into his death, the, the, the going down into the water. Then the resurrection Easter is us coming out a new life. We were buried with him by baptism into death, Paul said, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now you say, but Lanier, you're still a sinner. Oh, that's the old me. The price for that sin's already been paid. That's old Mark. I have been raised in a new life because if I've been united with Jesus in a death like his, I'm certainly united in his resurrection. And I am there on Easter morning to tell you the tomb is empty and that matters to me. 
Because the God who took my sins and paid the price defeated death. Defeated sin. And that victory is one I share in. And he says to me, he says, Mark, you're a new creation. And I'm working in you. Little by little, day by day to change who you are. I've got a lot of friends who watch this. And I am, they will be quick to tell you, I have never been, nor am I, the perfect friend. And there's part of me that just wants to say, I am so, so sorry for the ways I've done things wrong or the ways I've, I've, I've been immature in a relationship and, and things like that. But I will tell you this, God is at work in me because he's transforming me into the likeness of his son little by little, day by day. That's the resurrection. I share in that. I didn't just have my sins paid for. I was resurrected with a new life. Look at it this way. Paul says in Romans 6, 8, if we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. That's coming out of the waters of baptism, a new creation. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. For you, for me, for all of us. He died that death to sin. He took our sin and the death that comes from that and he died it for us. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So we need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So was the death of Christ necessary? Absolutely. Why the empty tomb? Because God won over sin. And what does that mean for me? Well, I want to tell you um, a lot. Everything. See, there are storms ahead. Thinking, yeah, COVID-19, it's a big storm. Fine, yes, that's one storm. There's more. Absent the Lord coming back, I don't think there's anybody listening to this who's not going to face death. I don't think there's anybody listening to this who's not going to have loved ones die. Who's not going to have struggles in relationships, struggles with stewardship and money. Who's not going to have personal demons to fight. There's nobody who's not going to see suffering in the world. We live in a world, in in these bodies on this planet, awaiting the final day. But here's where the resurrection of Jesus makes a difference to me. Let the storms rage, let the wind blow. Because I'm standing on a rock. Paul was at the end of his life. And he wrote a letter to uh, kind of his protege, a younger fellow who's now middle-aged. His name is Timothy. And he was explaining to Timothy, I say middle-aged, he's still probably in his 20s or maybe early 30s at the time. That used to be middle-aged when I was young. Now that I look back, I've decided 59 is middle age. 
But Paul said to him, he said, in essence, I'm, I, let the wind blow, let the storms come. Now, Paul's going to be um, uh, martyred by Emperor Nero. But Paul says, that's okay, because, listen to this verse, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded he is able to keep what I've committed to him unto that day. So we're here in this chapel. And Brent, I don't know if you can give a sweeping view of the chapel or not. But if you get a sweeping view, if you could pull up on the, the, a camera that could show the, the, the end of the chapel, if you will. This is the, the, the painting at the end of the chapel. And it's the risen Lord. And, and it's, we painted it after a Byzantine theme. Is it possible to zoom in a little bit, Print? If you zoom in a little bit, you're going to see that Jesus still has the nail scars in his hands and his feet. You're going to see that Jesus is wearing two colored robes. The blue represents the heavens. That's his divinity. The red represents blood. That's his humanity. That gold sash was a remnant from the Roman Empire. That means uh, he's Caesar. He's Lord of all. And the, the halo behind him has the Greek words ho, own. That W-N is as a long O and an N. It, it means um, uh, the one uh, uh, who is. And that's God the Father who was behind the work of Jesus. But Jesus reigns as a crucified Messiah. Jesus, if we bring, go to the Elmo for a moment, let's experiment for a sec. I'm going to turn the Elmo uh, upside down. Can we, yeah, let's see if I can figure out how to get to the roof. This is the dome above me. Uh, let's try to, okay, we're going to get there. There's another picture of Jesus enthroned. Underneath the throne, it says in Greek, Ponto Krator. That means almighty, uh, mighty over all. And Jesus sits as a crucified Messiah. You can still see the nail holes because that's how he became, in a sense, uh, the, not, not in a sense, real, uh, the redemption of humanity. He's holding a book. It says, Ego eimi heihodos in Greek, which means I am the way. That's who Jesus is. He's the way to the Father because he's paid the price. Here's the thing. What difference does it make to me with anything going on in the world? Anything going on in my private life? It makes this difference. I know whom I've believed and I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him. And I can face it with confidence. Let the wind blow. I'm standing on the solid rock of Christ. And I know what's coming. I know what's coming. It's not just a storm. The storms will come and the storms will go. But his love endures forever. Life conquered death. So what does that leave us with? Well, uh, Pastor David Fleming used to be the, the... 
lead pastor at our church. He now works with me at our library and foundation. And, and he graciously put together, uh, two weeks ago, he put together a list of God's promises. And then last week, he put together a, a list of showing God working through circumstances. This week, he's put together about a 26-pager showing God wins the victory of God. And these are just passages of Scripture, one right after another, right after another, the victory of God. Uh, uh, hundreds of you have emailed and asked us for those. If you want, the, we're glad to email you these. Just email us info at lanierfoundation.org or email me personally or email David personally. Um, uh, but, but we'll get it if you send it to info at lanierfoundation.org. And we'll send you the list of the promises if you want those as well. 23 pages of promises. We'll send you the, 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 the two dozen pages of God working in us. And we'll send you, if you want this week, our final set, which is the victory passages that show God wins. So I'd urge you to consider that. Um, I want to say a prayer of blessing over us. But after I do that, by popular request of emails and texts, we will go out by me playing the Phil Keggy song that he did for us last week. And uh, people have asked that I play that again, so I'll give you one more shot at uh, germs on the run. But let me first pray over us. Father, thank you for the technology, the, the opportunity to share with folks today, young and old. I pray your blessings on them. I pray you'll convict us of what you did at the cross, what you did in the empty tomb, and how it changes our lives today. We pray through our Lord Jesus. Amen. And with that, here is your video of uh, the song by Phil Keggy, Germs on the Run. <laughs> 